early March 2020, schools shut down all over the world in response to the growing threat of COVID-19. Artist Wendy McNaughton wanted to help. My wife and I were trying to figure out how we could be helpful to our friends and their kids. And my mom suggested that we could, you know, do some drawing classes for kids. I had a few people who followed me on Instagram. I figured I'd heard about this Instagram Live thing. I'd never done it before, but why not? The first day of her Instagram Live drawing class, 12,000 people from all over the world tuned in to learn from Wendy. She guided students through how to draw a dog. At the same time, the next day, she returned. And the following day, she returned again. And then again. All right, hello. It's Friday. It's Friday. We draw together on Friday. She called the classes Draw Together. So, who wants to draw a dinosaur? Who wants to draw the smell of a unicorn? (laughs) Today, we are going to draw a fast traveling race car. And all in all, she recorded 72 live virtual classes for kids during the early days of the pandemic. Yes! Everything's better when we draw together. Before becoming a drawing teacher for kids across the world, Wendy was already a well-known artist and visual storyteller. She uses a mixture of pen, watercolor, and handwritten text to tell surprising human stories. They're surprising because you get the sense that she sees the world more closely than the rest of us. She's reported from Guantanamo for the New York Times. She reported on end-of-life care, technology in prisons, heavy, moving stuff, but adult stuff. Withdraw together. All right, let's shake off the mistake. Shake the hands. What if we draw a magical Band-Aid? that we can give to somebody who we want to take care of, somebody we love. Wendy's work wasn't just about drawing. Her classes were really about supporting a worldwide community of kids set adrift during the pandemic. Wendy gave parents a reprieve and their kids a gentle way to process their feelings. I thought it might be a good idea to take those feelings and to make a drawing for the folks in Ukraine. Two years later, Draw Together is a beautifully produced show, podcast, and educational program. And Wendy is just getting started. I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer. Influence is a show about influence, who has it, who wants it, and how to use it for good. Wendy McNaughton is an illustrator and a graphic journalist with a master's in social work. She was a longtime visual columnist for the New York Times and California Sunday Magazine, as well as the illustrator of several best-selling books, including Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat with Samin Nosrat. She has an excellent TED Talk called The Art of Paying Attention, where she encourages people to actually look into their neighbor's eyes and notice how it feels to really see someone. And that lesson is for all of us. She's with me here today. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So you're an artist and a trained social worker. You no longer work as a social worker. No, no. I'm trained as an artist um, and I got a master's in social work. And I worked as a social worker for a little bit, mostly in my internships and then doing communications for nonprofits. But most of my work has been in the drawing field. But 
in your work, you could also say that you've become a social worker again. I just love that you're the one who said that, not me, because I'm usually the person who's trying to explain how social work fits into my work so much and how fundamentally my work is drawing. But the drawing is actually a vehicle for connection, for telling stories, for sharing stories, for elevating stories, and fundamentally the work of of social work. Do you know what social work is, may I ask? Like, because a lot of people don't. Yeah, that's like, we all talk about social work, (laughs) but very few people actually know kind of what it is. uh, Social work is a field of practice that supports humans and social justice, basically, and works from the inside out. It thinks about people within ecosystems. So when we think about how a person exists in the world, instead of maybe like psychology or something like that, when you think about the person and then who they are on the inside. Social work really looks at the family dynamics, the social dynamics, the political dynamics, the economic dynamics, and all of the forces that are acting on a person in order to support that person to make the changes that they want to make in their life. And a lot of times that also includes changing the systems themselves so that we can have a more equitable world. But there's probably quite a few social workers that would feel that they don't have the power to be able to do particularly that latter part, but you actually have. Oh, um, I don't know if I have that uh, power. I have had and do have opportunities to use tools that I have for a positive social impact. I use that opportunity every chance that I can in the best way that I'm able to, for sure. So whether that was like doing stories, drawn stories in the New York Times when I was sharing stories about people or situations that normally might not get a spotlight and elevating those stories and putting them in front of an audience of like, you know, political or business leaders, right, to try to impact policy change or something. Or now with kids using drawing as a vehicle to enhance a kid's curiosity and connection and self-confidence. Yeah, I think drawing's a pretty powerful tool to share stories and connect with people, and I sure do enjoy doing that. Where are you getting inspiration from? Um, It's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of different people in different fields. Creatively speaking, uh, folks like Dorothea Lange, the photographer Dorothea Lange. If you look at the way that she was a photographer who documented the Japanese internment and things like that, that wasn't getting the kind of attention that it needed. And the way in which she photographed, I think she said something like, she considered every photograph a collaboration and she would never take a photograph without having that person's engagement and participation in it, right? That approach to art and to drawing for me is very important. Are there stylistically people that you've, uh, that have influenced you or? Sure. Um, there's an artist named Raymond Pettibone. Oh my God. Love Raymond. It's amazing. I just bought a piece from him that he collaborated on with Marcel Zama. Um, the two of them worked on a piece together. Oh, I'm familiar with that body of work, Damien. Are you telling me you just acquired one of those? Yeah. Guess who's coming over to your house to check out your art collection? <laughs> That's me, and I'll be over this afternoon. <laughs> I've loved his work for ages. Yeah, a lot of times when you have um, two big artists, especially two two big male artists, you have two big egos, and that kind of cancel each other out. You right? Um, it makes me think about 
Warhol and Basquiat also, right? And um, their collaborations. So sometimes when you get just the right combination, it becomes this magical third thing where you can really see both artists in it. But again, it grows beyond them. I can't wait to see more of them. Um, Raymond Pettibone, ever since art school, I've been a huge fan. Oh, okay. I went to school in Los Angeles. There was a gallery that represented him in Santa Monica. And I went into the gallery and he had a show up and I was talking to the gallerist. He's like, well, would you like to see the flat files? And and I didn't, I didn't know that was possible. And the gallerist opened the drawers and there was just these drawings. And, you know, I put on gloves and I held them myself. And it was this moment, like there've been moments um, in my life, maybe you've had this too, where like well, kind of walls that I've sensed between myself and other people have fallen. And I like, oh, I can do that too. You know, and that was a moment where I realized that that Raymond Pettibone's work was just ink on paper <laughs> by a really, really committed person, a really smart, talented, committed person. I have a very similar story, actually, that I just stumbled into um, David's Werner Gallery in New York. David's daughter, Malena, was there, and we were just chatting, and she said, if you like Raymond, you should come through to the back room. And we've, my granddad, who is a big drawing collector, had just given all of his drawings to the gallery to document and archive. So they had all of Raymond's work spread out over the back tables in the Zwerner Gallery, and it was all the surfer images. The best. Yeah. Stunning. Yeah. His images are so cohesive, but the strokes are so loose. It's this, the spontaneity, you know, but also that it's just so tight. It comes together so beautifully at the end. He's also my favorite, favorite person to follow on Twitter. Very entertaining. <laughs> He's a unique individual. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly. all we're gonna say. <laughs> He's a hoot. He's a hoot. So if you if you combine like Raymond Pettibone and then on the other end somebody like a Myra Coleman, yeah, she's a big influence for me also in her storytelling. Although she does a lot of memoir and she paints in gouache and such. I remember when I first read, I think it was her book, The Principles of Uncertainty. There was this. This complete lack of regard to what she's supposed to be doing or writing about or thinking and just really going with her own curiosity and following her own threads that was very liberating for me. And to see that that could be done visually through combining word and image opened up big doors for me. But then I was thinking to myself, if I'm going to be doing this kind of visual storytelling, but I have the social work thing like you were mentioning before, Social work has this one other important thing that I should mention, which is a code of ethics. And I've worked in advertising, I've worked in communications and in art and such, but there's no code of ethics in those fields, as you might have noticed. Okay. <laughs> and I, I witnessed that lack of it firsthand. And I felt, you know, being raised in a secular family and seeing the impact that art can make and that visual storytelling can make, I felt like I really needed a code of ethics for myself. So that's something that social work provided me with that I bring through into all of my storytelling work and into Draw Together and all the work that I do. From a journalistic point of view, I, I'm just going to jump to a conclusion here, but it may not be the right conclusion. I saw that you'd contributed to a cookbook with Maria Popova and um, Debbie Millman, I think. So I worked with Maria Popova, Debbie Millman, and a great writer and editor named Sarah Rich. And that is a book of art by the artist and designer C.P. Pinellas. Sarah Rich and I were at an antiquarian book fair walking around, 
and I spotted a cookbook, a drawing, a painting, a gouache painting of a bowl of borscht. And it was the most beautiful painting I'd ever seen in my life. And it looked a lot like Myra Kalman's work. It also looked a lot like my own work. And I asked to see it and the book purveyor took it out and put it in front of me. And it was actually the original artwork. And it turned out that this, this book was this woman, C.P. Pinellas's sketchbook that she had painted all these original paintings and recipes in. I'd never heard her name before, but a little quick Googling revealed that she was the first art director at Vogue, the first female art director of Condé Nast, that she was the first art director to ever hire Andy Warhol as an illustrator. And she's probably one of the most influential figures of design that's existed, but she never got her due, perhaps because she was a woman at the time, and she was married to a very like notable male designer. So we purchased that book. We couldn't afford it, Sarah and I. It was a ton of money. So we called our friends Maria and Debbie, and we all pooled our money together, and we we bought that sketchbook. And then we set about bringing it to light so that we could share C.P. Pinellas' name and work and influence with the world. Nice story. But so Maria is a friend of yours. So where I was going to was from a journalistic point of view, whether... I was wondering where your journalistic references came from or inspiration, whether Maria played a role in that or not. So journalistically, like I mentioned before, a big influence is the photographer Dorothea Lang and her collaborative way of documenting her subjects. She also traveled around the country uh, doing her photography in a mobile studio of sorts. Um, and she is an influence to me in building my own mobile studio. I converted a Honda Element okay. into... <laughs> A mobile drawing studio. Pretty impressive. What was that like driving around? I love it so much. When I go on drawing drives, I have a couple simple rules. And the main one is that I might know where I'm going, the main destination, but I don't know quite how I'm going to get there. And I rely on the suggestions of strangers. So I'll meet somebody and chat with them and then ask, where should I go next? And they'll send me to my next destination. If I start to get a little bit nervous, then I know it's just the right time to get out and wander around, you know, to lean into those moments of uncertainty and the unknown. That's where the fun new unexpected things happen. And I've learned also the difference between the nervous and the fear. You don't get out of the car when you get the fear. (laughs) You learn the subtle differences there. So what was a good nervous nervous trip? (sighs) This isn't a nervous as much as a little little alarm when you pass something and you think, I want to go back and see that. But you don't, right? Because you've passed it already and you got to keep going to where you're going. I have a rule that if I have that feeling of like these little butterflies in my stomach, you got to go back and and check that out. (laughs) Absolutely. That is the universe saying you have to pull over and go back. It doesn't matter if you're running late. It doesn't. This drives my wife crazy, by the way. Um, You have to go back and check it out. I had that experience when I was driving in Utah on a little small single road and there was a little sign on the side of the road that said bootmaker hand painted side on the side of the road and I went past that and you know I'd probably driven maybe like three or four minutes before I was like no I gotta go back and I turned back around and went and ended up spending an entire day with a man named Don who is a bootmaker and became a friend and we did a great story together. <laughs> you did a project with the San Francisco Public Library I'm interested to know how you approach people in that space. 
How do you get people to feel comfortable with you being around drawing them? I don't have to go up to people. People come up to me because it's not very frequent that you see somebody standing there with a sketchbook drawing and people are curious about it. So generally, I don't have my sight set on someone. They have their sight set on me. So I might be drawing, like in the case of a library, of I don't know, a rack of books or something like that, the stacks. And then somebody would walk up and say, hey, what are you doing? And I say, I'm drawing these books. What are you doing? And they'll say, oh, I'm checking out these books. And then I say, what are those books? And that's a conversation that started, right? So I don't have to open it. The drawing opens it up and people's curiosity. Also, the other thing is that's kind of a self-selected group of people who are going to come up and ask a question. They're open and they want to chat, right? This is the other tip. Two things. One is just spend time in a place and let people come up to you. And that's one of the magic of drawing. And the other thing is, I think a lot of times when we're talking to people, we're so often trying to connect with people in that that we end up kind of finishing people's sentences and talking a bit about ourselves and what we're doing. Um, And I like to pretend that I have a spotlight over my head. So when somebody comes up to me and they ask me questions, I take the spotlight that I might usually have over my head and I swing it onto them and I just keep it on them. And I say, so tell me about the books you're checking out. And they'll tell me about their books. And then I'll say, oh, well, tell me more about why you're interested in that. And then, oh, well, where did that interest come from, right? And just keep the spotlight on there. Whereas normally I might say something like, oh, well, I've read that book too, and I loved it. That's the end of the conversation in a lot of ways. It's come back to me. So I think people can do that actually in their everyday life. And your TED Talk, you asked people to draw one another in the audience, and then you were, you were explaining what they were doing and how they were interacting. You all just did something that people rarely do. You just made intimate eye-to-eye face-to-face contact with someone without shying away for almost a minute. And that hit me because I get criticized a lot for being intense, that um, I look a lot and I don't necessarily say very much. I was going to say, it's a funny, <laughs> it's a funny personality for a podcaster. I know, yeah, but I'm a bit <laughs> of a funny personality. But um, apparently I make people quite uncomfortable by just staring. You're listening to them right? And you're seeing them. And I don't think people are used to that. And it feels vulnerable because somebody really wants to know us. And then we have to sit with ourselves and we have the opportunity to share ourselves. And that doesn't happen very much. The irony is that's all we want. All we want to do is to connect with people by being heard and being seen. But we're not taught how to hear, how to listen, or to see people. And we're not also not taught how to be heard and how to be seen. And one of the biggest joys of the work that I've done, it's not that I get to tell the stories or I get to see the people and all of this. It's the joy that somebody gets through sharing their stories, <laughs> And through being seen, because very few people have the opportunity to do that. Because we live in a world that's going super fast, and it's very transactional. And and we very rarely ever slow down and really allow ourselves to be seen and heard and hear and look at each other. So I think the more opportunities we can do that, the better. Let's talk about Draw Together. Oh, yes. (laughs) 
Is this the thing you're most proud of? <laughs> I'm most excited about right now. Yeah. yeah. And I would say it's one of the things I'm I'm most proud of. It's definitely back to the, what we were saying before. It's a big old collaboration, but with um, a little younger group <laughs> that I've been working with. So the Draw Together, it's a show, it's a podcast, it's a community, it's a collaboration, and it seems to still be growing. The way that I at least perceived it, it was born out of the pandemic. It was an um, emergency pandemic relief. It started the first day of school closures in the Bay Area, which was uh, March 16th. We're coming up on the two-year anniversary. And uh, my wife and I were trying to figure out how we could be helpful to our friends and their kids. We have a lot of young kids in our life. And my mom suggested that we could you know, do some drawing classes, that I could do drawing classes for kids. I had a few people who followed me on Instagram. I figured I'd heard about this Instagram live thing. I'd never done it before, but why not? So Caroline, who'd never held the camera for an Instagram live before, me who'd never done it, you know, we pressed go live and Draw Together was born to the tune of 12,000-ish kids. (laughs) And we all drew a dog. And we went from there. I think we did 72 live classes um, back to back and formed an incredible community of kids throughout the world. And, you know, more than just learning how to draw a dinosaur or learn about perspective or whatever, it was a time of fear and isolation and uncertainty. And it it gave us all, myself included, a way to be together and to process our feelings and to gain a sense of like self and community in a really uncertain time. I don't believe you set out to be the next Bob Ross or um, <laughs> Rolf Harris if you grew up in England. <laughs> uh, no, um, no, I'd never taught kids. I mean, I've taught a little graduate school, but I never taught kids before. <laughs> so this was completely unexpected. But like all things, when you look in retrospect, it makes perfect sense. Look, I'm an only child who's been performing for imaginary characters since before, <laughs> you know, I, for as long as I can remember, my wife and I, we don't have kids, but we are like aunties to many. I'm called an art auntie by some. Um, and I just love it. And I've also been called a child myself, which I take as a compliment. <laughs> I have the curiosity of a kid, I think. And Draw Together isn't about drawing so much. I'm not really that interested in um, kids learning to do a quote-unquote good drawing. Just like if you look at my work, it's never about doing a good drawing. I mean, I have some skill. I've studied whatever. It's fine. But it's much more about being present. Yeah, they're not rubbish. Come on, let's be frank. Well, I mean, (laughs) you might (laughs) not think so. I'll show you some of my drawings. Mm -hmm. and then we. (laughs) No, I mean, I've studied and I practice. That's the thing. You practice, you get better. I've been practicing my whole life. But what's interesting to me about a drawing is, I, you know, I draw mostly from life. So it's about spending time with the person or the place and getting to know it and having that feeling of the person or place captured in the lines that I draw, right? And with the kids, I'm not that interested in them learning how to do a what they would consider like a good drawing. It's much more about learning to use the tools of drawing to like express themselves, to get their feelings out, to pay attention to the world and to connect with it. Kind of like this magic silver bullet, I think drawing is underutilized. So I'm excited we're we're using it now. And I mean, how many kids are you now talking to? I mean, tens of thousands around the world. During the deepest part of the pandemic, we had hundreds of thousands of kids, you know, that spread around the world from about over 50 countries. And 
It was this big community that was formed. And then we stopped. We took a break for a little bit. But the pandemic was still going on. (laughs) And we got a lot of requests for it to come back. And being one to not leave well enough alone, if I see an opportunity, I definitely want to do it. We built a set. Yeah, let's talk about your set because it's, oh <laughs> it's beautiful. Thanks, Damien. Yeah, it's very theatrical. But uh, you made that yourselves, right? you and your wife. We did. It turns out a, f- a friend of mine, his name's Brian Burkhart. I didn't know this, um, but he used to help do set design for Pee Wee's Playhouse. So he and my wife, Caroline, Paul, and myself, in the middle of the pandemic, um, built this set. A bunch of kids came in with masks on and helped do the paper mache. The entire thing is built out of um, paper mache and cardboard and paper. And it's in a theater in San Francisco that wasn't being used at the time. And it's got a giant pencil and an eight-foot-tall pair of scissors and a magical screen that takes us to visit our guests. Everything you could want in a draw-together studio. It's really beautiful. It looks like it's being produced by a set designer or a theater set designer. The real concept behind it, to be quite honest, is that, you know, I grew up looking at television thinking that there was this other world, kind of like I was saying with Raymond Pettibone. I, I thought that he was this magical person that existed in some other world that was not my world. And when I saw his drawings in my own hands, I realized I could do that too. And I want kids to have the experience when they're looking at things on the screen, not that there is an imaginary world, that there's their world and they'll never get there. I want them to feel like I could make that. I could do that. So there's nothing on the Draw Together set that a kid could not make themselves. And we've gotten pictures of kids who have made giant pencils out of pool noodles and stuff like that. So I want like the entire thing to inspire creativity in kids. Oh, cool. And so throughout this process, what, do you, what have you learned from the kids about what they need from you or what they needed from you? Kids, I mean, we all are. But kids, kids get, I think, the brunt of it. There's a lot of perfectionism around today. There's a lot of expectations and pressure. And kids feel that a lot. And it comes out in art quite often. I heard from a ton of parents and teachers, educators, that kids won't even start a drawing because they're afraid they're going to get it wrong. Or that it won't be right, quote unquote. They won't be able to do it the right way. And if you think about how that extrapolates to the rest of our lives and how that narrows our ideas of what's possible for us, risks that we want to take, things we want to try. Well, if we can early on in life at a time when it's really easy to open up things instead of having to rewire them later, if we can open up possibilities, create self-confidence and give kids the opportunities to make a mistake and then turn it into something new and learn all of that in art, that impact will be huge on the kid, but also on so much more about how we're interacting with each other in the world. So creating the opportunity for kids to do that in home and also in a classroom, if we can do that with Draw Together, which I think we are, I know we are, I don't see how we can do anything else. As we speak, my daughter's downstairs with a friend of hers. They just did a painting together. So they just drew uh, two old ladies next to one another. As I walked into their room, I said, oh my God, that's beautiful. Amazing painting. And they went, oh, the head's a bit weird. And this, this. what they just painted is as good as a Rose Wiley painting or drawing that, you know, you'd pay a lot of money for. So isn't that interesting? Can I point something out that you will want to edit out of this? 
Can I make a suggestion? So I've learned so much about communication. This comes from the social work side of things and working with kids. One of the things we do is we started this nonprofit. It's in classrooms, draw together classrooms. We give educators language that they can use to support a growth mindset in kids who um, are making art. For you and me, it's super normal for us to come in and say, hey, that's a great drawing of a dinosaur or whatever that is, right? Like, let's say, you know, you go in your daughter's room, she has a drawing of a dinosaur. You say, that's a great dinosaur. Well, like two things have happened there that you probably didn't intend to happen. One, you introduced a judgment. You said, that is a good dinosaur. And it says that there is a right and a wrong way to do a dinosaur. And the way that she did it is the right way. And it creates that kind of paradigm. The other thing that happened is it turns out that wasn't a dinosaur that she drew. It was a dog and now she's crying. Okay. (laughs) So like, (laughs) I'm I'm sure this has maybe happened to you. It's probably happened to a lot of, I know it's happened to me with some kids. So instead of asking or instead of saying that is a good this or that is great, if we can approach with questions and we can say, wow, look at that. Was that true? You put so much energy into that. Tell me more about that right? And go back to that kind of question asking mentality, that curiosity. It will allow a kid or a grown up for that matter, right? To, right? To explore more about where they're coming from. And it ends up becoming a conversation instead of a judgment that closes the conversation down. We don't have to edit this out. Oh gosh. Well, the funny (laughs) thing is, again, like I don't have kids, so please uh, don't take everything I say with a grain of salt. Much respect to the parents. So much respect to the parents. I'll bring you some other parenting <laughs> stories next time. <laughs> so how do you how, how do you tackle some of these tough subjects? You know, some bigger issues like current situation, Ukraine, Russia. Elephants are always in the room. And if we don't talk about them, we're not doing anybody any favors. And that is true of grownups and kids. Kids know what's going on. They know. Because if you are watching anything on a screen or you're talking about it or you're feeling anxious, then the people who are around you, especially your little ones, are going to pick up on that, right? And so to not talk about it is a pretty big disservice. Yeah. So we did this with Ukraine. It's terrible what's going on. And I think grownups everywhere are feeling it and feeling sad and angry and anxious and scared and helpless. And kids are picking up on that. And so I wanted to provide an opportunity for kids to to connect with what's going on, but in a way that is meaningful and age-appropriate that gives them an outlet for their feelings, a way to process their feelings. So one thing I should just say is like, feelings occur in our body. One way to kind of process them is with our body through drawing. So when we draw, we do this and draw together. When we are feeling angry or anxious, we can draw really, really, really fast, you know, and that kind of helps us move through the body and identify like that's what an anxious or an angry feeling looks like. Right now, with what's going on in Ukraine, um, we talked about how when people are suffering and feeling sad, just like when we're suffering or feeling sad, it feels good to know that people are thinking of us. And so we can let people who are sad, we can let them know that we're thinking of them. Um, We can always take our feelings and turn them into art and we can turn art into action. So we learned about sunflowers and we drew sunflowers together on the podcast. And then we hung them in our windows to show the world 
and the folks in Ukraine that we are standing with them. And it was really nice to see classrooms all over the world, actually. We had a classroom, I think, in Germany, put up sunflowers all in their windows done by the kids. Um, And it's important also that the kids see each other doing that and that they feel part of a larger community. How important do you think art is right now? We're not going to go anywhere good without it. Why is that? Because if we can't imagine a better way to be, then we can't be it. I've said this in Draw Together that it's up to the grown-ups to untangle this mess, and it's up to the younger people to imagine what's possible. We're too old to actually imagine what is possible, right? Our brains have hardened around the facts that are on the table. But we need to give kids the opportunity to think, like to imagine a better way of being, And if they can imagine it, and if they can draw it and literally put it on a piece of paper, then it can become a reality. So hopefully, my job and Draw Together's job is to create a space where kids can can imagine, and they can feel curious, and they can feel confident, so that they can put those things down on paper. And then as they grow up, they also have the emotional and social tools to implement that. You know, just that little thing. (laughs) (laughs) Simple. Yeah. Um, It was a real pleasure. Oh, it's really such a joy. And that's our episode for today. Thank you to Wendy McNaughton. I'm convinced everything is better when we draw together. If you do not already have a WeTransfer Pro account, we'd like to give you one. Well, at least a few of you. Check out we.tl forward slash Wendy. As a professional podcaster, I have to say it twice. That's we.tl forward slash W-E-N-D-Y. For a free WeTransfer Pro account given to all of you listeners. And if we run out, don't worry. You'll be able to pick up another one next week. Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our amazing producer is Rachel Swaby. Please don't steal her with editing from Audrey No and Elise Hugh. Sound engineering is done by Mark Bush, and our WeTransfer creative producer is the lovely Kiara O'Shea. You can find Influence on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're enjoying the show, please follow, rate, and leave us a review. You get an extra pro account if you leave us a review. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time. Well, I do want you to say to Wendy Mac, my kid, my kid likes likes your uh, videos. <laughs>